Welcome to the Von Nelson Podcast. Today, our guest is CEO and CIO Chris Wallace. Welcome, Chris. Thanks, Dan. So, Chris, uh, you know this is this is a little bit unusual for us. Two fairly close back-to-back podcasts, and, and and the reason for this one is you know we've seen a lot happen in the last few trading days. Um, you know, since we last spoke, we've seen the Fed cut rates fifty basis points. We've seen a continued hugely volatile market. Uh, Treasury yields are collapsing. Um, We've seen major corporations grounding employees, right? They've they've canceled travel. They've canceled conferences, um, gatherings of of any scale. Um, The U.S. dollar has has really weakened. Um, And, you know, so one of of the things that we've we've discussed at length is is the liquidity recession. Um, You know, we've been talking about that now since the the first quarter of, of 2018. Um, and over the last couple of weeks, what we've seen here is, is the, the coronavirus triggering uh, a lot of the action behavior that has, uh, that has followed. And you know, so the so question for you is, you know, what, what did the virus set in motion and, and how is that set up uh, leading to the, the behavior of the market today? Yeah, no, that, that's spot on. As we've always said, liquidity drives price and fundamentals will drive those relative uh, movements with price. And liquidity not o- only drives price of risk assets, it's also necessary for economic activity. And just kind of as a reminder, liquidity can come in, in various forms. It comes in the form of savings uh, from individuals, from profits, from companies, through borrowing of loans in a fractional banking system or, or margin in a shadow banking system, and more recently being the last 10 years in the form of QE. Um, and we ran into liquidity constraints Uh, in the fourth quarter, and all that means is the demand for liquidity is always increasing as both economies grows and as asset prices move higher, and we were were seeing some dislocations. Um, When you fast forward to kind of the the first quarter uh, this year, the market was, as we said previously, was in a very vulnerable spot. The gross longs um, were a little excessive. The implied fall was too low. And what COVID-19 has done is pull forward what were going to be ultimately just liquidity issues further out in the year. Uh, but it pulled them back. It pulled them forward. It, it kind of broke supply chains. And when supply chains shut down, the liquidity, meaning the payments to suppliers and, and the receipt of payments from customers breaks down. Well, those companies then have to go find alternatives for liquidity, whether that's stop paying uh, employees. And in that case, then employees aren't, you know, making the rent payments. And as such, they draw down their lines of credit, the corporations do. And when they draw down those lines of credit, that shrinks liquidity at the bank level. The bank has to find that liquidity to the extent they didn't have excess liquidity, which they didn't. Um, and one source of that clearly is, is liquid public markets. That causes a repricing. It causes investors and, and leverage players to try to degross their books. That then causes equity derivative desks to shrink. That negative gamma position is kind of pro-cyclical. So as it goes down, there's more and more selling until you reach equilibrium when it runs up. And while you get these thousand point gains, there's more and more buying. Um, but it's all within a band that's kind of dictated by the, the volatility and the implied and volatility in the market. So the, the daily moves we're seeing in the S&P 500 um, really just reflect what we would have called in the 80s portfolio insurance, for lack of, of more specificity. 
and so we trade within these ranges and depending on whether the where we are within the range and where these either derivative desks are shrinking to get capital or their their clients are shrinking or grossing up dictates these up and down moves what's important for investors to understand is these these daily moves in the S&P 500 are not discounting the coronavirus and its economic impact it has almost nothing to do with that so whether there's you know six more patients in this region or spreading here, that's not what's dictating this. This is all about the need for daily liquidity to address these big moves in balance sheets around the world. It does have implications for the credit markets, and, and so that's a whole different animal, and there's a whole different set of causes for that. So let's let's um, go a little bit further in this conversation about liquidity. So you know, as as you think about a functioning market, right? We need enough liquidity uh, to fund economic activity, um, while at the same time the excesses of that liquidity um, ultimately have, especially of, of late, uh, rolled in and funded risk asset prices. Yes. Uh, and so the Fed has has combated that by growing their balance sheet. Yep. Um, and the demand for liquidity has 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 really outpaced the, the balance sheet, the Fed's balance sheet uh, in recent periods. So you know, what is uh, at the fundamental underlying driver of that yeah. demand, right? What is causing this, you know, this the, overhaul demand? Yeah, they, they really set it in motion when they started QT in 2018 because when they withdrew uh, or shrunk their balance sheets, that removes liquidity and reserves from the system. And what's important for uh, participants to understand is that the liquidity that was provided by QE from 2009, you know, up until uh, the Fed stopped growing their balance sheet, that liquidity was over and above what was needed to fund economic activity. And therefore, that incremental liquidity really does feed into risk asset prices. And it has a very pro-cyclically self-reinforcing element to it. So it suppresses volatility, it boosts valuations, it gives the appearance of excess reserves within a banking system. So that encourages lending. And when you suppress volatility and you keep rates low, you get malinvestment, you get very inefficient investment. Um, and over time, since rates were kept so low for so long and leverage is built up so significantly, you really don't have enough productive capacity for the private sector to be able to replace the Fed's QE when they start to withdraw it. So as they withdrew QE, we started to see a liquidity recession that's a repricing of risk assets globally. We saw that with the VIX ETNs that went to zero overnight. We saw it with a breakdown in the Turkish lira. We've seen it with a fall off in the value of luxury real estate as ultimately, you know, we saw even more capital controls out of China as they had to deal with declining liquidity. And when you want to apply it to stocks or sectors, you know, that's what's driving the, the dramatic fall uh, within the energy space. Capital has been cut off, um, and we're going to start to see that roll through. Ultimately, what ended up happening and made, made it uh, more of a significant issue is just from the demographics in time, our federal deficits are starting to accelerate. And when we went to replenish the Treasury's account, late in 2019, there was insufficient liquidity to both fund CNI loans and fund treasury deficits. 
And the way you should think about that expressing itself is the repo market. The repo market kind of balances this daily liquidity. Um, and so when we saw Treasury trying to issue a lot, crowds out CNI loans, reduces liquidity, there's not excess liquidity, the repo market was starting to break down because, you A, you couldn't fund, and so there wasn't enough collateral to, to fund and support um, uh, investment portfolios. And so markets weren't able to clear. The Fed stepped in with their temporary repo facility. But unfortunately, it's just not enough, right? If all they're going to do is fund the Treasury's deficits, then who's going to fund the, the, the liquidity that's needed to support the elevated asset prices around the world? So that's what's bringing the volatility into play in capital markets. What COVID did, though, at the same time is it, it exacerbated the breakdown in liquidity, but it did it internationally. And that's important because certain areas of the world have less access to dollars, right? If there's a dollar shortage in Japan, it's not as big an issue because the Japanese central bank has swap lines with the U.S. central bank. They can get dollars. That's not true in China. That's not true necessarily in South Korea. So over there, where that's where the manufacturing base is, that's where plants are shut down. You can imagine the liquidity being drained for the system and the need for those entities to draw on lines of credit and access credit, and they can't get it. So this is just tightening up a liquidity. This is squarely at the feet of the Fed. I mean, they put us into this position specifically during the Yellen era, um, and it's coming home to roost, and we got to deal with it. Right. Yeah. So if, if you know, as, a, as I'm thinking about this, as you're, as you're running through your ideas here, you know, the, just the excess liquidity was just really masking or in, in, in being an enabler, right? I mean, it allowed for, you know, it encourages leverage, right? It, yes. it allowed for um, the ability to suppress volatility. It allowed yes. for risk asset, risk asset prices uh, to uh, re-rate themselves higher, yes. right? And uh, again, that mask comes off and it, it ends up being pretty ugly. Well, and there's another element to it as well, which is the way the Federal Reserve has kind of structured its system with the floor system. It, it, it's very inefficient and, and ineffective in the current environment. So the irony is, you know, they, that, you know, money markets are clearly have been a large source of support for the treasury market, especially when they changed the regulation and forced them to buy treasuries. Well, when repo rates were higher, money was flowing in. The irony is, as the Fed cut rates this week and as short-term rates fall, that could actually make the liquidity situation worse, right? So it may be counterintuitive that the market sells off when well, rates you, fall. Can you just, yeah, go, yeah. Go, go through that. Well, yeah. what happens is if you're a corporate entity and you've enjoyed the benefit of a money market when the, the, you know, the three-month treasury may be 1.5%, okay, that's reasonably attractive relative to elsewhere in the curve or relative to a corporate or investment-grade bond. You cut that, that money market rate, you get that treasury rate down below, you know, 60 basis points or 75 basis points, you know, that money's going to start to leave. It's going to go find a place that'll earn a higher return. Well, that's your primary source of liquidity outside of your primary dealer's um, and you just exacerbate it. And this is the problem with a financialized economy, which is when you lower rates long enough and at low enough levels, 
And as an economy, you built up enough leverage and like we've done, you know, we, we moved our manufacturing base and we moved our productive assets overseas. Cutting rates is actually counterproductive, right? When you cut rates, you encourage more malinvestment, less efficiency, and ultimately you'll not be able to raise those rates. And in our situation, because of the, the pension obligations and other things, it's really counterproductive to have these lower rates, but no one's going to have the political will to raise rates, force better investment, put zombie companies out of business, increase the return on capital. Uh, it's just not going to happen. So unfortunately, I'm not convinced that, you know, as we look out over the next several years, that we've even seen the lows in treasury rates. Do you think we could have a negative nominal rate? I think negative nominal rate is very difficult. Um, I think they will do everything in their power not to do that. And quite frankly, if we go there, it's a disaster. Uh, negative rates will absolutely just gut your financial system. And we can't forget that the rest of the world is reliant upon our positive rates. So even if you look at Japanese regional banks, the amount of money that has flowed into our leveraged loan market and CLO market from Japanese regional banks is there probably could be up to 20, 15, 20% of that, that market flow. They're just looking for a positive return and a positive spread. They can't get it anywhere else. So the irony is, as bad as some international banks look and the negative rates, and if we go lower, which we were forced lower because, again, the way the system set up with the Fed, when you had that wide uh, interest rate differential, it, the, the, the plumbing doesn't work. So we've been forced lower to get closer to those international rates. It's really tough on, on the international banks. And so, you know, I hope we don't even think we can go to negative rates. If we do, we will have a deflationary environment. And let me just throw this in real quick because, you know, and I've had this conversation with uh, a lot of people recently and, you know, the, the argument that gets thrown back all the time is, well, you know, interest rates are so low and treasuries are so low, I might as well just buy the S&P 500 because the dividend yields higher. And that logic is fundamentally flawed, right? You're talking apples and oranges. One is a store of capital. It is different in the capital structure. And the other is at the bottom of the capital structure and is a risk asset. And what the market's telling you and what a treasury curve is telling you at these levels is future real growth is lower, future nominal growth is lower. If you extrapolate that to the equity markets, what that means is, is earnings growth is lower, your multiple is going to come down, and these companies are going to start to need to pay debt down. They can't carry as much leverage. So yes, you may can buy the S&P 500, and earn 100 to 150 basis points more than you can by owning a treasury. But that doesn't mean you're not going to give up double-digit percentages in principle over a very long period of time. And so the markets are efficient. This, is, this stuff is priced in. There's not going to be an obvious arbitrage of go buy the SP500 and sell your treasuries. That's flawed logic. It's dangerous. Right. People shouldn't do that. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. Uh, there's, there's one other topic I, I want to discover as we, as we finish the liquidity discussion here this afternoon. Um, where, like, where, where do you go to find liquidity at this point, right? <laughs> I, I think that's, you know, as you, as you run through, um, you know, your, again, your thoughts, it's, you know, we, we, 
need to we need to search some out. We need to find some liquidity, but um, it, it certainly sounds pressing to do so. Yeah. Now, the, in the you know the thing about liquidity, as we all know, it's the biggest coward in the market. It's not going to be there when you need it, um, and so there really is the incremental source of liquidity today is going to come from the central banks. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Now, the problem is they're really limited in what they can do. Um, you know, the federal, there's a lot of talk about, well, MMT or the Fed's going to buy equities and things such as that. They can't, right? It's, it, it'll violate the Federal Reserve Act. This isn't something that you can just do. Um, and it's also, I don't want people to get the sense that the, that the Fed's flat-footed, right? When the Fed uh, member gave a speech, I guess Quarles gave a speech a couple of weeks ago and talked about you know, needing to access the discount window. And then Jamie Dimon comes out a few days later and says, you know, maybe we'll just tap the discount window so that, you know, we can get rid of the stigma. That's the biggest load of crap on the planet, right? They're saying that because they know that they could very quickly end up in a liquidity situation and they need to access liquidity. So don't be surprised if you see a the Fed try to uh, open up the access to the discount window or increase the appeal of it by lowering kind of quote the penalty rate associated with it. And we'll see, I don't know what kind of collateral they can accept through the discount window. Maybe they can accept a broader array of, of collateral and that will provide the incremental liquidity. But the other thing people need to be very cognizant of is, look, we know where the excesses are this cycle. We've said all along they're in private credit. Uh, and in private equity and they're in valuations. So this is a part of that liquidity recession. We're going to reprice assets. You know, when you look at the lower rung tranches of private credit and, and levered securitizations, uh, there's going to be problems there, right? And those problems may leak into, you know, parts of some of the high yield ETFs. And as people go to sell those? Is there really going to be the liquidity and the bid and the mechanisms for that to occur? Um, and as we've always said, you know, it's funny, there's, a, it's always a five lane highway into some of these less liquid securities, but it's a goat trail to get out. Well, some of these securities are getting ready to head down the goat trail and they're going to figure out real quick what the underlying value is of those portfolios. So, so those excesses you described, do you think that we've begun to make an impactful correction against those? Oh, for sure we have. Um, and, you know, the volatility we've seen where, you know, the fourth quarter of 2018 was the biggest drawdown in U.S. equity markets since the Great Depression. Then 2019, we have this rapid snapback rally. Look, that's liquidity driven. We lost the foreign bid for treasuries in late September of 18. That created dollar scarcity and liquidity constraints as the Fed's uh, deficits were widening out. We need to go get dollars. Where do we get them? The S&P 500 is a big pool of dollars. We got them there. We're, we're, we're headed down. Then the Fed... China and others boosted liquidity in the first quarter, and we get a big rally. And now, guess what? You know, COVID and other issues and deficits have pulled the liquidity back. 1819 and year to date 20 is nothing but a reflection of uh, the breakdown in liquidity, again, to be sufficient to support asset prices and support economic activity. And, you know, a lot of people are going to say, well, okay, well, let's just go and cut the federal budget and, and cut the deficit, um, and then we'll have sufficient liquidity. Good luck with that, right? Uh, you're not going to cut the federal spending level because if we did, 
If, if the Fed or if the Treasury wasn't running deficits as high as we are, nominal GDP growth would be negative, which means less economic activity, less profits. And again, it exacerbates the liquidity situation. So, the, the, you know, the only way out of this um, with what I'll call the least uh, amount of perceptible pain politically is going to be the Fed just flat monetizing fiscal spending. And my suspicion is that's not only where we're headed, it's where all the developed world's headed. And if not, then, you know, risk assets are going to have much lower multiples five, ten years from now. You know, Chris, that, that's, that's really helpful thinking about, you know, kind of that, that middle term or mid to long term outlook. But, you know, what do you see right now? What are the guideposts you're, you have an eye out for with the portfolio? Um, what types of triggers are you keeping an eye on to uh, for managing the assets? Yeah, again, you know, we're, we're looking at this as an opportunity, right? You know, as we've always said we've got our shopping list ready um, and, and we'll buy securities because, again, the underlying economy going into this cycle was improving. And we saw that, you know, with the February jobs report today. And the same was the case in China, Europe, elsewhere. Um, what I'll say, though, is this is a liquidity issue. And so we're going to watch these short-term uh, liquidity market indicators. What are investment-grade spreads doing? They're widening today. Got it. High yield, widening as well. Are we going to start to see a breakdown if you look at the amount of submission for Fed repo relative to what they're accepting? Clearly, there's a breakdown in the short-term funding market because the need for repo financing is increasing dramatically. And the Fed thought they were going to be able to kind of wind that down. Not going to happen. So I'm watching these really short-term indicators. I'm watching to see if we're going to close access to credit. Um, and whether that broadens out to the extent we do it. Clearly, where oil prices are today, you know, the energy sector already was under pressure, didn't have access. Uh, that's going to become a, a bigger factor, you know, little known fact. You know, you look at some of the high-yield ETFs, they're about 10% energy. Okay, I'm not sure those are priced where they need to be. So I'm going to watch those indicators. And that will give me some sense of if I see volatility in equity markets start to fall, if I see volatility in interest rates and spreads start to dampen, that tells me that the liquidity, that the grease is getting out there and we're going to heal and we're going to move forward. Because again, I don't think this is an underlying economic issue. We can deal with the economic impact of the virus. But what we're struggling with was a liquidity issue that was already present before we got this later, this latest disruption. Good. Well, let's let's call it a day there. That's really helpful. Thank you, Chris. And um, you know, I guess we'll uh, we'll keep an eye on the markets. And next time we see anything crazy, we'll drag you in here again. You bet. Thanks, Thanks Dan. The views, information, and/or opinions expressed during this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Von Nelson and its employees. Von Nelson does not verify and assumes no responsibility for the accuracy of any of the information contained in the podcast. The primary purpose of the information, opinions, and thoughts presented in this podcast is to educate and inform. This podcast, or any podcast in the series, does not constitute professional investment advice or services and any reliance on the information provided is done at your own risk. Past performance is not an indication of future performance. By accessing this podcast, you acknowledge that the entire contents of this podcast, 
are the property of Von Nelson and, or used by Von Nelson with permission and are protected under U.S. copyright and trademark laws.